From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to a full hour of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. This is Cade Massey hosting this week with my longtime collaborators, Eric Bradlow and Audie Weiner. Our fourth Shane Jensen is out and about. He will be back in the future. We are recording on Tuesday afternoon, as we typically do, and coming to you via Zoom, as we have been for a while. We've got a guest in the second half of the show, Mike Petriello of MLB.com. Good conversation on baseball these days, both high-level themes as well as some detailed analysis. Good fun in the second half. First half, open lines, a number of hot topics. Very curious to get your takes, gentlemen. What in the world of sports has been catching your eye? Well, I spent a lot of time last week watching tennis. Uh, I think that, you know, at Wimbledon every year is kind of one of the highlights of the sports season. And it was just a great tournament. Um, you know, obviously everyone wants to focus on the men's side, and I think for good reason. I mean, I think it had been 10 years or so since the number one and two played each other in the world. And I don't think there's any doubt at this point who the top two players in the world are. Um, Alcaraz came in as number one, but, you know, a lot of that had to do with Djokovic wasn't allowed to play the U.S. Open last year. I mean, Djokovic had held both majors of this year. Alcaraz won the previous. But now that Alcaraz won Wimbledon, of the last four majors, they've each won two. Obviously, this was a defining moment for Alcaraz's career. I mean, just a few stats. Um, Djokovic won the first set. He had won 114 consecutive Grand Slam matches after winning the first set. That's kind of interesting. Um, He was the four-time defending champion at Wimbledon. He had not lost on center court in Wimbledon to the 2013 finals against Andy Murray. And Carlos Alcaraz had only played four tournaments his entire life. He's only 20, but on grass, and including one of them just last week. So prior to last week, he had played two tournaments his entire career on grass. And it shows you how much surface matters in tennis. And I think Djokovic summarized it at the the end very well. He was very brutally honest. He said, I didn't think I had to worry about you on grass. I thought I had to worry about you on clay. I thought I had to worry about you at the U.S. Open. You're the defending champ. But I just thought on grass, no way. And I think it was just it was a remarkable match. But I will say one thing. It shows you how margins are razor thin. And, you know, you could say Alcaraz was the better player. Yeah, I think he was overall. However, there was one point in the match. Djokovic had won the first set 6-1. We're in the second set tiebreaker. Djokovic is leading 6-5. He wins a point. He wins. He's up two sets to love. Mm-hmm. I don't think Alcaraz is coming back down two sets to love in that match. Djokovic hits a routine backhand directly into the net. It's 6-all. At 6-all, Djokovic hits another routine backhand directly into the net. So now it's 7-6 Alcaraz. And then Alcaraz hits one of the great returns of all time to win the set. But Djokovic hit two balls into the net that he just never does. And they weren't under duress. They were unforced errors. And let's also remember, Kate, he had won 15 consecutive tie breaks at this point. And Alcaraz knew that. Alcaraz even said after the match, I knew when I beat him in a tie break, I could win the match. So Djokovic doesn't do that. And he's up two sets to love. We're talking about the 24-time champion, five-time consecutive Wimbledon champion. Let's think about what was on stake for him. He would have tied Margaret Court for the most majors of all time at 24. He would have tied Sampras and Borg uh, for winning, uh, sorry, Federer and Borg for winning five straight Wimbledons. Mm. He would have, I mean, he would have gone back to number one in the world. I mean, there was a huge amount on the line for Djokovic. And it was the first time I was like, he's beatable. He's beatable. And I'm going to say going forward, I don't look. I don't know how many more majors Djokovic is going to win, but Alcaraz is a serious threat to him. And I also think even the other Alcaraz said it after the match. Maybe some other young players now believe that they can beat Djokovic, too. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what happened. But it, it, it was one of those. Look, 21 years, 21 years since nobody, somebody but the big four won Wimbledon. 21 years in 2002, it was Leighton Hewitt 
But ever since then, it was Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, Andy Murray. That's it. 21 years. We've been waiting 21 years. Uh, Alcaraz wasn't even alive. He wasn't even alive when someone else won Wimbledon. So this, to me, was a huge thing. It was an absolutely monumental match for the history of tennis. Really. That's neat. That's neat. Um, that's a very good context, Eric. And I love this moment that you've identified late in the second set that was so close to going the other way. I mean, there, these moments happen all the time in sports and we forget about them because we focus on the outcome. They happen all the time. Now, we don't know what would have happened. We don't know the counterfactual, but it sure does seem like those moments can be super influential and entire histories are changed by which way they go. Yeah. And I then do. another, and just another quick moment was at one love in the fifth set, Djokovic is up one love. Alcaraz is serving 30, 40. Uh, Djokovic hits this remarkable approach shot. Uh, Alcaraz basically hits this defensive high lob, which Djokovic smashes directly into the net. Now, Mm. if he wins that point, he's up two love and a break in the fifth set. So those two points, this is where I've always said, and, and Djokovic also, you know, this is a very brilliant man. You know what he said after the match? He said, you know what? I've won a bunch of matches. He even talked about his 2019 match against Federer. I've won a bunch of matches where the points could have gone the other way. Maybe this is he, you know, he framed it this way. Maybe this is the gods getting even with me. Maybe we're even now. You know what? I won a couple I probably shouldn't have won. And now I've lost one that you could argue maybe I should have won. There's a there's a great quote from Bobby Jones about golf that goes something along the lines of, you know, it, I never worry about the way the ball bounces because sometimes it's going to go with you. Sometimes it's going to go, go against you. He just fully acknowledges the role of chance, both in the victories and in some of the defeats. Adi. Yeah, I watched a lot of the match as well. And although I don't have a recall of those particular points, I do remember an incredible number of points that Djokovic won that I just can't believe. I'm still shit. I was, I was at the gym watching some of it in the morning because that's when the match takes place. And I was doing my my fairly lengthy stretches, and I, I screamed in the middle of the gym at one of the points. He he, had, he I just couldn't believe he had done that. So it seems to me a little bit like in hindsight, you can always find things that have gone either way. Um, yeah. And uh, I thought he played you know magnificently. Of course, he blew a couple points, but didn't didn't Alcaraz blew a few points along Alcaraz, the way? Alcaraz Alcaraz certainly did early on in the match. But one stat, Adi, I mean, people talked about this. You know, yeah, this is the old, you know, non-statistical thing. You got to take it from the champion. I don't know what the final stats in the match were, but at the end of the second set, Alcaraz had 40 winners and Djokovic had 15. Uh-huh. So just to let you know, Alcaraz was playing supremely offensive tennis. And he wasn't waiting because, look, you're not going to out hit Djokovic. You're not he, you're going to make more mistakes than him. You are. You just are. Absolutely. So you, you, you have to hit winners to beat this man. And I think the ratio of winners, I, I don't I'll look at the final match stats, but I wouldn't be surprised if Alcaraz had over two times the number of winners that Djokovic had in the match. Don't you also have to divide by the number of errors? So if you if a, if a winner, no, you do, you do, you know, for a fact, I'm just saying Alcaraz had, I was just focusing on the winners. He was playing the more offensive game. There's no question about it, but it was a great match. And then I just want to say one thing before I get to my prediction for Alcaraz's career slams. Um, The women's side is very interesting too, because, you know, the uh, Von Drusova won. She had been the first unseated women in the modern era ever to win Wimbledon ever. So she was unseated. She won Wimbledon. This has not happened since they started the seeding back in the early 70s. So that's a big thing. And then the woman who lost, Ange Jabour, is now 0-3 in major finals, which made me go back and look at the history of tennis. So how many people have started 0-3 and then have had a successful career? So let's start on the men's side. Yvonne Lendl was 0-3 to start his career in majors, then went 8-8. So he ended up with eight majors. But eight and 11 overall. Simona Halep, women's player, great champion, was 0-3 to start, then went 2-0. and The woman that Ange Jabeur keeps pointing to, Kim Kleisters, was 0-4 to start her career in majors, and then went 4-0. And I actually just saw something else. Chris Everett was 0-3 in majors, and then went 18-14 and the rest of the way. 
So those are some good names. I mean, Lindell, Everett. I mean, that's Meisters. I mean, but at level, Lindell and Everett would be in the top ten easily, yeah, obviously, seriously. of both of their respective sports. And so, my question becomes: You know, well, Anj Jabor, she's twenty-eight. You also have to think about the age of winning your first major. Lenda was much younger. Chris Everett may have started playing in major. I mean, she may have made major finals when she was 16. She was the child prodigy. I mean, she played, by the way, it's another record that uh, Djokovic, Adi, broke. He played in his 36th major final, breaking Chris Everett's record of 35, Mm. which was also another interesting stat. Um, And by the way, you could call this good or bad. So now Djokovic, I think it's still good. He's 23 and 12 in major finals. I think if you asked most people, they would say that's really good. But to show you comparatively, maybe comparing it to Tiger Woods, there was a point. She lost her last three. But Serena Williams at one point was 24 and four in major finals or 22 (laughs) and four. Sorry, 22 and four. I mean, it was unbelievable until her last three. She was unbelievable in major finals. It really speaks to the dominance. All right. Well, speaking of majors, um, this is a conversation that we had probably last year when Alcaraz won his first as a 18, 19 year old. And people talk about it again now. So it's the kind of thing that we often speculate on. But how can we even think about it? how should we think about it? and Audi, this is where even though you're not as much of a tennis guy, you think about these things in sophisticated ways. How should we think about a career forecast for Alcaraz? It's much more interesting challenge now i mean we've been doing this about the big three for the last few years it's a lot less interesting at the end of their career here's a real challenge for you what number do you want to put on a 19 year old 20 year old after two that's a really tough question but i do think in general tennis players are a little bit more forecastable than in other sports i think that we know a lot about alcaraz way more than you know about an equivalently aged basketball or, or football or even baseball player at the at the age I wouldn't make I wouldn't have a chance of making a forecast on on career home runs of it for a 20 year old um, but I think we have a decent shot the problem of course is competition so the, the only reason why um, if you, you need you need people to, to challenge him and there usually are but we've seen you know three or four guys dominate for 20 years um, if that doesn't happen he should be he's forecasted to be I mean, he, he could break the record, but if he gets some competition, he'll, it could be anywhere. So that's the real question. And, and so you have to predict two things with tennis. But there's, a, there's, a, player. But there's, a, there's a third one, obviously, Odd, and that's his health. That's, that's the, the, the single factors. But does that, let me just ask you guys in history, how many young players showing incredible amount of promise were wrapped up early because of health? How often does that happen? I mean, Bjorn Borg ended early, but that, was that health or just he just was tired? He was just tired of it. He wasn't. <laughs> he was interested in other stuff. Yeah, and he was too, you know, winning 11 majors by age 26 was enough for him. <laughs> so I, I don't I don't think um, injury is the kind of thing that knocks out a tennis player the way it does a football player. Maybe it doesn't knock out, but it definitely gets in the way. I mean, we've seen it even with with the big three have we not i mean maybe that's just part and parcel of nadal for sure nadal for sure murray of course if you want to count the big four um i i would think of it the following way i'm gonna use what you've always told me so it's an np problem how many majors do we think he's going to play at a very competitive level let's say he's 20 let's normally you would say till 30 in the old days but let's say he plays for 15 years so that's 60 majors right so to me, a potential, lower bound. Six, potential 60, 60 potential majors. So you want to shrink that by injury. Right. He's going to play. All right. So, well, I, let's say it's 40. 40 is a number. Okay. Let's say he, maybe 40, 50. 50. Yeah, 50 would let's mean go 50. Let's go let's 50. Let's go 50. And shrink it by, yep. Good. So if he wins, I would say at a lower bound at this point. I mean, he's won, he's been in three finals. Um, but let's say he wins. of those. All right. Well, that puts him at four and a half majors as a lower bound. If he wins 20% of them, that puts him at 12. I think it would be hard to come up with an argument of a forecast above 12 or 13. That seems to be to me to be a huge number for him. Or let's even just say more than averaging one a year for the next 12 or 30. It shows you how ridiculous Djokovic winning 23 is and he's not done. And let's remember Djokovic 
was really bad in the majors to start with. I think he was like one in five or something like that. Like he didn't win a major. He, he won. He had one major up until age 25. And he's just happened to have won 22 of the last, like he's won like half of their last uh, 40 let's, majors. Let's, let's, let's talk about that. And as forecasters, is there any value in thinking about the chunkiness of the way these things usually go? Because you've just been talking about base rates, which is utterly, it's the most parsimonious way to do it. And you played with, 20 is a reasonable number, and then you kind of heuristically move that to 25% once a year. But we know that that's not the way these things go. We know that the way they play out is they start out slow, and they have injuries in the middle of their career, and then they win big chunks. They win three in a row. Like, Is there any value in actually forecasting with that kind of process? Open question. I, I want to throw in, I, that just creates a lot of variance. And, and tennis, this kind of concept is chunky. This is what we would call I would call it a, a compound Poisson process where the compound Poisson. So, so basically the, the hits are the Poissons and that's a function of the number of competitors, which is kind of the, the number of super talented competitors is probably Poisson zero, one, two, three, four. They don't get more than that. It's not like baseball or football where it's huge numbers or more binomials. And then the compound, the compound part is the almost like uh, is that when it happens, then you get a bunch, it's almost like clumping. So it's actually a process called the, the Poisson clumping uh, process. And that's probably how I would model the tennis. And that just creates a lot of variance. Um, and which means that the distribution, it could be a damn long tail on that thing. And it could also end up short, on the short side. But I, I'm kind of with Eric, 12 or 13 is, is as high as a forecast you'd ever make. But it's not. It's well, not let's, but, 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 but okay, let's ask a different, let's ask a different question then to make it more interesting because that's just the expectation. Because you're talking about variance, you're talking about tails, and so we should ask a tail probability. What's the probability that he wins more than 20? Or what's the probability oh. that he meets, that he pops Djokovic okay, so, 24? So I would say if this were another sport and a superstar comes up and he asked me what's the probability he's like an all-time great, I would put it at under 5%. This number I would put higher. I would say the, the probability of him winning, uh, say, 20 is in the 10 to 20 percent range. Well, let me let me let me I was thinking about this. I was also thinking about this as a path diagram. And here's what I mean by that. What would prevent that from happening? So a couple things could happen. One is the next person that comes up, maybe it's uh, Yannick Sinner from Italy, who's same age, by the way, who's also showing a lot of promise. Maybe two years from now, Yannick Sinner is just much better than Alcaraz. Now, take one player that's much better than you to stop yeah. you from winning a lot. Like Andy Murray in many generations wins 10 majors. He just happened to have his career overlap exactly. It just, to, you know, in Andy Murray's case, he had three players that were better than him. Same with Stan Wawrinka. Stan won three. There were just yeah. four players better than him. So that's one path that could stop it. Another path is there could be three or four players that are just turn out to be as good as him. And therefore he's coin flipping one out of five, one out of six majors for the next 50, which means he wins eight or nine more, but not 18, 19, 20 more. My belief is from what I've seen and how great I think Djokovic is still, I think the former is so unlikely. Like someone comes along that's so much better than Alcaraz that he's not competitive. I think the latter, though, is more probable that he end, that ends up being two, three, four players that end up being competitive with him, and he splits more majors than we're actually giving him credit for. But the one thing I will say also is he's one on grass. He's one on the hard courts. I actually think, and so do the uh, uh, analysts, clay is his actual best surface. If he hadn't cramped up at the French, I think he would have beaten Djokovic this year. I think clay is his best surface, and that's the major he hasn't won on yet. He hasn't won on clay. So, But I think, again, I go back to my path story. I think a path's coming where four or five other great players will split a bunch of majors with him. Well, I, one of the takeaways, I, I love y'all's expectation. I think that's reasonable. But I also like this chunkiness, variance increasing way of thinking about it, where you can have that relatively modest expectation versus, you know, the kind of hype, but still have some probability on the right tail. But, because but let's, let's, let's transition. But this is a perfect transition to the other major event that's happening now this week, which is the British Open. But I, this is why when Adi said this, the, the compound Poisson, 
Let's contrast this to the forecast we would have made for Rory McIlroy at age 24 when he had four majors. And this is, Adi made this point before, golf to me is a lot more chunky. It's a lot more streaky than you seeing what happens in tennis. And there's a lot more competitors, too, that have the capability of beating you. But, you know, in some sense, if you had told people that, Rory McIlroy, nine years later, would have zero majors in the last nine years. Most people would have put, I mean, no good statistician would put 0% probability on it, but they probably would have put under like one in a thousand. Like, how is it possible that a man that has won four majors at this point will have won none in the last nine years? So I'm excited to see the British Open. Obviously, uh, Rory McIlroy just won, I think it was the Scottish Open, where he birdied the last two holes. Scheffler, you know, I saw a stat that I don't think I I know I got this right, but I couldn't believe it. I think it was like 15 or 16 tournaments in a row. Scotty Scheffler's been in the top 15. It came about because he's the leading (laughs) money winner on tour. And it's not just that he wins big tournaments, but he's like he's competitive in every tournament. Um, Ricky Fowler had another good tournament at the Scottish Open. Um, And so I think this is a a John can never count out John Rahm. I think it's a red. Ridiculously stacked major with a lot of people playing really well. But back to your point, Adi, I think the streakiness we see in golf, I feel more comfortable saying that I think that um, Alcaraz is going to get to 10 majors because over this long haul, his ability, I don't think tennis is quite as streaky as the way that golf is. I think I, I feel more comfortable in that forecast than I would in a golf forecast. Well, the golf forecast majors that it reminded me of is was the Tiger stuff because the the hype around Algaraz isn't as strong as it was around Tiger, but it's the most we've heard in a while about a kid at this age. And we everyone was convinced that Woods was going to break Nicholas's. Yeah, you know, if you record. told people he had fourteen in two thousand and eight at age thirty three, and if you had told people that he wouldn't get his fifteenth until eleven years later at the Masters that, you know, they would have said another zero probability event. A hundred percent. And this is the kind of thing, I mean, he really went off the rails both physically and in some other ways. And that doesn't happen as often in tennis, it seems. But these things, these things do happen. It's a heck of a thing to try to forecast what's going to happen to a 20-year-old. But I don't care kid. what anybody tells me. I, it's not about momentum. I'm not going to use that. The fact that McElroy hasn't won a major in nine years, I'm not putting him the favorite. I know he's the betting favorite right now. I'm just not doing it. I, hey, do you just, know? Do you know his what? Where he won his last major? When it, when he won? It was the British. Do you know where they played it? Yeah, the same place they're playing it now. Exactly. So I mean, it's it's I mean, it's fun. It's a good storyline of nothing else. Um, I've got actual numbers from an actual uh, golf better, who you guys know, Rufus Peabody who is a great golf handicapper. Most people do not. Many people think he's the one of the better ones going around. So he shared some actual numbers. So we don't need to deal with market. We can deal with an analyst numbers. And I, I'm, they're striking. The numbers are striking in the following sense. What do you think the favorites are going off at in Rufus's golf model this week? Outright to win. Well, I know what the betting so just, odds are. You're saying you're not asking the betting odds. You're asking Rufus's predictions. Yeah, I'm asking Rufus's. And, and we can also play the game we often play about how many golfers do you need to reach 50% because we don't have to work with betting odds with Vig and all that stuff. We can just stack up probabilities because these things the are going to add Is that what's happening? Are we going to move the line, Kate? <laughs> no, the bets are in. Rufus said I could talk about it pretty plainly because the bets are in. But the, here's the thing that jumps out. And what do you all think? Just, let me just tell you, Rory is top and Scotty's right there with them. What do you think those probabilities are? What do you, what do they feel like? They should, now y'all are cheating and looking at the betting. I'm line. not looking. I'm not looking. I'm not looking. I would say they're about one and eight. The so top, you're, the top I, people are one and eight out of your saying. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Both top. Around you're one spot eight. on with Rory. Rory's just below twelve percent, and Scotty is right behind him at about ten percent. So Rory just a touch above Scotty. But the thing that's striking to me is that they are twice the odds of the next batch of guys. They dropped down to five and 4% behind them. Two guys, a full lap ahead, essentially Rory and Scotty that far ahead, according to Rufus's models. Isn't that interesting? 
Yeah, I, I, I think that's, uh, I mean, Rufus, I know, is considered one of the best. To me, that's way too much probability on just two golfers. And, you know. Um, it's you know, guy, right. So it's 20%, 22% that one of those two golfers wins the thing. Right. And it I'll feels take, like a and lot. If the other ones are like at 5%, 6%. You can take yeah. those two, and I'll take John Rahm, Cam Smith, Brooks Kepka, Victor Hovland, Ricky Fowler, and Tommy Fleetwood. And maybe one. Or yeah, two. that's a fun game. So, do you say two guys, or you can take how many guys does it take to stack Probably up twenty-two or seven? Six or seven. Yeah, it's going to take six or seven. Xander, Rom, Contley, Kepka, Tyrell Hatton, Tommy Fleetwood, Victor Hovland. You can have that whole. You're taking <laughs> well, the six or seven. You're taking the seven guys, right, that. Adi? Okay, yeah, I'll, I'll take six. You can have top two. I want the next six, and the rest can be uh, a push. We'll do it. How about part? Yeah, Eric, we got to you, you got to take the third tranche and we'll give Shane the field. <laughs> Let's yeah. do that. I'll take. I'll go with my boy Rufus and take the top two. Which one do y'all want the next 25 percent? We'll just divide the next 25. 25. Gets the next 20, Adi gets the next 25 percent probability. Well, you guys are giving me 50 percent probability. Thank you. No, we're going to give we're going to give you the third 25 percent uh, and, and Shane the fourth 25. That's fine. It's I'm like, happy to do it. Yep. I'll yep. I'll dole out the golf first to you guys. We'll decide the stakes. But that's it seems steep. I usually want to be on the other side, but I got to back my boy Rufus. So I'll take Scotty and, and Rory. I'll take the top guys. <laughs> All right, man. Uh, All right. Good fun. We didn't make it out of we didn't make it out of the UK today. Let's just note that in the second half of the show, we will we'll talk about the American sport baseball. But too much Wimbledon and British Open to talk about to go very far. All right, guys. That has been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. Come back and join us for the second half after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball rolling into the second half of the show and our streamed streamlined one hour summer version we're experimenting with this year we have a guest in this half it's been our routine to have guests in the second half of the show mike petriello is joining us mike is a writer and stats analyst at mlb.com sounds like he's got a broader portfolio than just that we'll hear more but he's got some terrific work up you can read writing about um advanced analytics in baseball, among other matters. Mike previously worked for ESPN, Fangraphs, and we're delighted to have him on Wharton Moneyball for the first time. Mike, afternoon to you. Hey, guys. How are you doing? We're well. We're well. Appreciate you making time for us. Um, these guys always want to talk baseball. This is a time of year where it is, uh, they're giving us plenty to talk about. It seems like it's been a terrific year, even to the the distant observers like myself, it seems like it's been a terrific year. Of the many storylines, Mike, we've got some that you've been writing about. But of the many storylines people have been talking about this year, what's your favorite? What's your favorite theme of the 2023 season so far? The fact, yeah, the fact that it's a normal season is the first thing that comes to mind. I mean, think about the last couple of years, right? 2020 was interrupted by COVID and 21 to some extent. Labor issues sort of threatened whether there was going to be a season last year. And then this year, it's the first time there's a normal season since 2019. And even that's not necessarily normal in the sense that there's new rule changes, which everyone was excited about. And man, those have exceeded everyone's wildest expectations, right? Pitch timer has been fantastic. The shift rules have been fine, whatever. But uh, to have a season where there's no interruptions and no concerns and a new rule that everybody likes, like I cannot remember uh, the last time everyone's been this happy. Everything's good in baseball, and that's true. What about the, the the pennant races? Do we still call them pennant races, even though there are umpteen oh. divisions? Is that still a thing? You still got to get into the playoffs. I think it's been cool because if you look at who's leading the divisions, um, it's not necessarily what you might have expected. I say I think it's been cool because I'm not a Mets fan and I'm not a Yankees fan, <laughs> so I can say that. But hey, listen, well, it's I'm good like for you're baseball. From, you're from New Jersey, and you're neither a Mets nor a Yankees fan. Really? No, I'm a I'm a Dodgers fan. Um, everybody wants to know how a kid from New Jersey became a Dodgers fan. So I'll tell you briefly in the eighties, when I was a kid, the Yankees were God awful. And, uh, when I was seven, I was on the Dodgers and T-ball and that was the year Kirk Gibson hit the home run and they won the world series. And all these years later, still a Dodgers fan. That, that works. That works. Um, all right. So not being a Mets fan, you're okay with how things are going down so far this year. 
I think it's good for baseball when there are unexpected stories, right? Going into the season, if you looked at the National League, pretty much everybody said, well, the six teams that made the playoffs last year all look really good, and it's hard to pick against <laughs> any of them, all the while knowing you were never going to get an exact repeat, yeah. right? And I remember looking at it and saying, well, the Diamondbacks are kind of interesting, but I don't know if I buy into them. The Giants are kind of interesting. I don't know if I buy into them. And then all of a sudden you have, I mean, the Reds may or may not make the playoffs, but they're an incredibly good story, right? The Diamondbacks have been really good. In the American League, Baltimore looks unbelievable. You know, Texas has exceeded expectations. It's not the teams we thought it would be. It's not necessarily the markets you would look to if you want the best ratings, because uh, the Yankees and Mets both kind of stink. But it's been good for baseball to have different players, different teams, different cities in the mix. Mm-hmm. Can can you share with... Eric, I think I'm holding off Eric a little bit, but just staying at the high level for a second in major storylines. I was enjoying the Padres kind of rise to competitive status with the Dodgers. And, you know, Dodgers have been such such a great program for a while now. Padres kind of challenging them. It's kind of an underdog story, even though they're throwing a lot of money at it. And then they just kind of don't show up this year. What's the explanation for what the Padre performance is? Oh, if I had an answer to that, I'd be running the Padres. Right now, I don't think anybody and nobody knows. Some people want to say, well, it's chemistry. To me, the pitching seemed fine. The bats just haven't quite been there. Like Bogarts has been okay. They haven't had a lot of depth. I think the construction was always a little bit weird. Like they tried to make an entire team out of shortstops, uh, which has worked to some extent. The defense has been good. Tatis has been a very good outfielder. Uh, To me, if you look at the Mets and Padres, they're the two most disappointing teams, right? And it's different to me because I feel like the Mets sort of are showing us who they really are. Whereas I keep feeling like the Padres have this run in them and we just haven't seen it yet. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. We'll hold out some hope yet. Eric. I was just going to ask you, uh, Mike, do you think that, you know, there's obviously been a a strong historical relationship, but even still today between team payroll and wins, obviously, do you think that analytics will weaken that relationship? I mean, obviously, we can make up stories like the Tampa Bay Rays and obviously the homage to our show, no, Oakland A's and, and Wharton Moneyball. But do you think that's a pattern we might see? Like maybe it's not just about what you spend. Maybe it's about spending wisely. Maybe it's about your analytics organization and the ROI of your dollars. Do you think that's that's something that we're going to see going forward in baseball? Well, I think that's always been true. Um, That's not necessarily a new thing. It's never been just about what you spent, right? The Rays aren't just good this year. You can go back to obviously much smaller dollar amounts, but you know, back in the 90s, the Mets would spend a lot and they were never any good, right? So there's never been a one-to-one relationship between it. What having the the deepest payroll allows you to do means two things, right? You can keep your stars. Uh, I know Clayton Kershaw is a homegrown Dodger, but obviously they've had to keep paying him many times over the years to retain him. And uh, it, it gives you some wiggle room if things don't go well. You know, if you are a lower budget team and you put a lot of money into a free agent and that free agent doesn't work out, you're kind of toast. Whereas, you know, if you are the Dodgers, for example, and you sign someone that doesn't work out, you can swallow it and move on. Um, I will say people are going to look at the Mets and Padres this year and they're going to say, hey, they spent all this money and it didn't work out. Money doesn't get you there. And they will say that while completely ignoring the Texas Rangers who spent unbelievable amounts of money on Corey Seager and Marcus Simeon and John Gray and all of these guys. And I know DeGrom got hurt, uh, but they are leading the American League West in large part because they rebuilt their entire organization with great big gobs of money. <laughs> it reminds me, you know, college football is never far from my brain. It reminds me of the the argument that you, you know, how much talent matters in college football. And there's this, this idea of a blue chip ratio. And the idea is you, the blue chips are four and five star recruits. Try the top 150 players in the country or so blue, the five stars are like top 30. The idea is that you don't win a championship unless half of your players, half of your recruits are blue chip. And these days you really need to be North of like 60, 70% to be competitive. And the, the thing is that matters a lot. And it's not perfectly deterministic. So it's just probably, it gives you room for air. I love the way you talk about that. It gives you room for air, Mike. Eric. Yeah, Mike, I was going to ask you a related, like, playoff-like question. So I think with very high probability, the entire AL East will be above 500. And I think with, I mean, right now the Yankees are at the bottom and they're five games above 500. Um, And I think there's a reasonable chance, we're only a game away from it, where the entire AL Central will be below 500. 
Now, of course, somebody has to make the playoffs from the AL Central. I, I'm always just interested in asking people if, I don't know, let's call it the Minnesota Twins end up playing the Toronto Blue Jays or the Rays or the Orioles or whoever it is in the playoffs. Like, let's even say they only win 75 games, 77 games. Are they 60-40 dogs, 70-30 dogs? How big do you see it? Let's say one of those teams wins 95 games. 95 faces 78 in the playoffs. What are you thinking? Or it doesn't matter. It's just who's got the best starting pitching at the time of the series. I'm still holding out hope there will be a rule change that the American League Central doesn't have to send a team to the playoffs. <laughs> and maybe we'll avoid that. Listen, it, the first round, um, you know, there was like best of three, right? Anything can happen. We've seen this how many times over the years? Because at that point, it's not so much about the depth of your team. Nobody cares that your fifth starter is. Nobody cares that you have a rookie as your fourth starter. If you have two top aces, any team in baseball can win two out of three. So if you're asking me to put a number on it, yeah, I don't know, 65, 35 at like the extremes. But there's there's never guarantees. You get one hot pitcher and you win a game right there and all of a sudden everything's changed. Yeah, right. All right, Mike, let's talk about some of the work that you've published lately because you are putting up interesting articles on MLB.com. Before we do that, give us a sense of your of your portfolio of work. You're not just writing. What else are you doing? And kind of what is the mission? What is your mission there at MLB.com? For sure. So I am a writer. Um, I'm also a stats analyst. And primarily, I work on the StatCast team uh, that creates and manages stats for Baseball Savant which is the stack as clearinghouse. All of our stats go up there. So I work with Tom Tango, who's you know legendary baseball analyst for decades. Uh, Dana Bennett, who you know does all the front end work, all the really cool visuals, Jason Bernard, a couple other people on our team. And what we do is we try to take all this uh, incredibly dense data. That's mostly Tom's job. And we figure out what can we do with it? How do we make it you know, consumable by the general public? How do we turn it into a metric that means anything? You know, for example, the, the next thing that's coming is uh, tracking of the bat, which we've never had before. We could never been able to tell you who swings the, the bat the hardest, at, you know, at a line drive angle or whatever. So that'd be the next thing. And we'll figure out how do we present that? We can't just dump spreadsheets onto the internet. We need visuals and leaderboards and all this stuff. So I spent a great deal of my time uh, doing that. I write when I can. We do a weekly podcast. I talk to broadcasters a lot. Like I was riding the subway this morning and I kept feeling my phone buzz in my pocket. And I looked at it and I had three different broadcasters asking me a question about some kind of stat they wanted to use tonight, which is cool. Like every day is different. And uh, on that that. point, Mike, on that point, we've, we've talked with people in production before and they've talked about how the broadcasters can be an impediment to getting analytics across. You got to have the broadcasters on your side really. And they have to be fluent and interested, enthusiastic, or else you're never going to get across what you're, what you could potentially get across. I think that's a hundred percent true. There are 30 local booths and a handful of national shows. And I probably have 35 different opinions about all of them, not all of which I will share on your air, but (laughs) listen, I think, I think two things, right? I think number one, uh, broadcasters are getting a little more understanding. Like this is the way baseball works. These are why teams are making decisions before this year. This is why guys were positioned in short right field. If I can't at least understand that, I can't explain the story to my viewers, which I think is true. The second thing is if they don't have an easy way to explain it with a visual in five to eight seconds, then I haven't really done my job. Right. That's like half the point is being able to give something to them that says, hey, here's the context of this. And I can tell you he's twice as good as it as as he was last year or he's third best in the majors. Like that kind of context is what's important. And if you don't have that, you can't expect anybody to turn their TV show into an algebra class. Yeah. 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 I'd. Yeah. So um, I've been enjoying StatCast or through baseball savant data since you first put it up. Um and there's no sport like baseball for producing more data and more useful data that anyone can enjoy. Um, but there's still data that is back there that we don't ever get to see that I think is in some sense foundational for some of the metrics that you're producing. So I think one of the most popular ones is, uh, is the outs above average, which is a great metric that it gets you to get a sense of how many, how much actual value a fielder is, is, is producing for his team, which is something I've actually written academically about years ago before there really was good data. Yet, um, Major League Baseball has never released that data for, for to the public that you can actually go ahead and, and do a, an outfield outs above average on your own. So I, I don't get the starting position of the of the outfielder. I don't get the, the hang time. I don't get the actual locations. Um, is that ever going to come out? So uh, at least in partial amounts, like in NFL and the NBA have, have both released data. 
Uh, sort of. I, I don't know that I would compare it to the other leagues because I know in a lot of sense there's much more baseball data you can access than they have available. But you're right. There are things that are not available. At, at the end of the day, the league is owned by the 30 teams, right? And my understanding is the teams are happy that a lot of stuff is out there, but they don't want every last thing to be out there because they think it gives them a competitive advantage, you know, or they they want to be able to make sure they're doing stuff that other teams aren't. So as far as will all of the data set ever come out, I honestly couldn't tell you. I I think people think me and Tom Tango that we like make all these decisions because we're the most public facing. Uh, but we, we try to push out as much as we possibly can while keeping our jobs at the end of the day, I guess is the best way to put it. <laughs> Mike, do other do you talk to other leagues? Do they call you? I mean, you guys have been working with data and more data than in pretty much any other sport, and you have really gotten effective at how you present it. Other leagues grapple with this, and they have a lot of issues. They've got to work with the broadca- broadcasters. They've got team constraints, all that stuff. But our, our broadcast organizations from other sports trying to talk to y'all about how you're doing it and what you've learned? A little bit. Uh, we've had some meetings in the past. Uh, a couple of our data science people in the last two years or so have uh, left to go work for the NBA. And I think part of the appeal there is it's a little more of the ground floor there. You know, a lot of the work here has already been done. That's a little more of starting at the ground floor. So can I say I've talked to anyone from the NFL or the NHL? No, but we're, we know for sure that they've been watching what we're doing because in a, a lot of sense, they're five, 10, 15 years behind, depending on what sport, what we're talking about. Yeah. You know, it's, it's fun to watch these things evolve. Like, God, what, you know, this is, this is a week where we should all be watching some golf. We'll talk about the British Open, talk about it, talk about the first half of the show. But um, they've gotten better. And, they, and it varies by, you know, what channel's carrying it. But it's interesting to see these sports evolve and what they present. Can you give us, an, do you have an example of something you've learned or MLB has learned about presenting data on broadcast and, or something you think you're a lot better at than you used to be? Can, can tell, give, us a, give us a view from your experience on how, because we're all in the data visualization business in some sense. You're just doing it for millions of people. Yeah, I, I think first thing I would think of, so it was in 2018, ESPN let us do a special StatCast show, right? We did a playoff game, Cubs and Rockies from Wrigley Field. So myself, Eduardo Perez, Jason Benetti, and it was kind of a, a test almost like, hey, will this work? Like, can you actually do this for three and a half hours? And the game went extra innings, excuse me, and it was a huge success, right? We loved that. We learned a whole lot from that. And what I've learned since then, it's been almost five years since then, is that most of what we did at the time is just now on the mainstream broadcast, right? I think a lot of it is just proving it out. You don't need to do a special show. People want to see what's out there, what's being used. And I also think the visuals have gotten a lot better. Like you can only go so far with numbers and in different ways to show numbers. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you you know, the StackCast 3D product, if you're not familiar with it, it essentially takes the real world and makes it look like a video game. So there's joint tracking now, right? Like you can track the player's legs and limbs and all this kind of stuff. And what that means is you can put a virtual camera anywhere. So if you want to put a camera, you know, on the pitcher's mound, behind the pitcher's mound, you can do that. Uh, David Adler, who works with me, actually had a really cool video he put out the other day. So Ellie De La Cruz uh, for the Reds had a throw of like 98 miles an hour or whatever yeah, it was, yeah, yeah. just like the hardest track assist. And so he yeah. put the virtual camera at first base. And he's like, here's what it looks like with that laser beam coming at you, which I thought was super cool. It's it's looks like video games. Kids love that. You don't even really need numbers if you don't want to to consume that and enjoy it. And that's really the trick, right? Make it entertaining as well as educating. Uh, Cool. Okay. very cool. Well, speaking of entertaining and educating, let's talk about some of the stuff you put up recently. One that caught my eye in particular was the most valuable outfield throwing arms in baseball. And I'll be honest, I didn't get past Acuna, who you guys put at the top of the list. But the reason I didn't is because I was so pleased with the way you guys do these calculations, the short of it. And and let me just let me tell the guys in case they haven't read it, they may know this. And this, Adi, this is exactly what you're talking about, outs, of, outs above average, because I think that's basically what they do here. But the beautiful thing is it's not just throwing guys out which is, you know, here's an opportunity to throw him out or not. Does, does the guy, how does he do versus expectation? Given where he is, where the runner is, how fast the runner is, all of that stuff, you can calculate an expected chance of throwing this guy out. And you can ask, you know, does he do better or worse than average? That's only part of the story in baseball, of course, because some they're not going to run on guys with good arms and they're going to run more on guys with weak arms. And so does the guy run? Is there even an opportunity to throw him out? 
And the reason this jumps out to me is because so much of our advances in stats are all about figuring out the expectation in a particular circumstance. We're getting really good at that. And then we can calculate these residuals. But what we're not yet good at is what about the player's impact on those circumstances? How does the player change those expectations? And what you're saying is Acuna has fewer opportunities to throw these guys out. And that alone should be to his credit because they're not running on him. And then you do this brilliant thing at the end of the art, at the end of the the Acuna section, where you take two plays that are identically situated, same height of ball, location of outfielder, similar speed of the runners on, on third. And in one case, Acuna is out there catching the ball. In another case, somebody with less of an arm is. And of course, the guy with the lesser arm gets run on, and the Acuna, the guy on the Acuna game is just sitting tight at third, not running on. I just think that's a long rave about. I just love the analysis that you did. Well, thank you for saying that. Um, you know, Tom Tango again did most of the actual math work there, but it's cool when you can quantify respect almost in such a way. Like these are really baseball-y things. You know, you're quantifying the, the little facets of the game in some way. I should say we do two different kinds of stats, right? One kind of metric we do is we're we're doing something brand new because no one's ever had that kind of data before. The other kind of metric we do is we're taking an older idea and just trying to apply it with the data that we have. So this is the latter case. This is not the first metric to ever try to account for, oh, he didn't get run on like that that is an idea that's been around for some time what's different about this is we have the position data right we know who the players are so we can say he had you know 200 feet to throw out this guy who's 80th percentile in speed and this guy has a 40th percentile arm or whatever the actual numbers might be based on all those inputs the expectation here is he's safe 40% 40% of the time, you know, and in his case, he was out or he was not out. And then you can, you know, take the other half of that. And that's how it all adds up to these runs. So while this isn't necessarily a new idea in the way that some of our other things are, it uh, it takes in the data that's, you know, a little more pinpoint and precise. And while you never want to like judge the success of a metric by does it, does the leaderboard match with what I think it should be? When you have Acuna at the top and like Christian Yelich at the bottom, who's notorious for having a weak arm, it's like, okay, I think there's some signal here. That's a good start. <laughs> right. Well, just to just to keep our our, our uh, honor our our forebears, Bill James, I think his famous quote is a good a good stat should surprise you 20% of the time. So you you want that validation in in most cases, Adi. Yeah, I made that point with my students today. If your if your new stat doesn't have the obvious the obvious people at the top or near it and the obvious people at the bottom or near it, there's a problem. Um, I remember doing something like this years ago with catchers throwing arms. And what, what ended up happening is that the catchers that provided the most value were the ones where there was the biggest mismatch between their actual ability and their perceived ability. Yep. They threw out the most runners. And I wonder if there's something that observe, something you can observe with the, with the outfielders where the ones who are the most valuable are the ones that, um, that end up being run on just too much and they end up throwing them out or that just doesn't happen uh, and, uh, and that you get more value out of just keeping them from running. I wonder what, what the balance works out. Well, what's nice is you can quantify both, right? So there was a year a couple years ago, I want to say 2018 maybe, where Kyle Schwarber, who is not a very highly regarded defensive outfielder, had this weird year where he was just piling up all this arm value and it made him look like he was a good defender overall. And if you went back and looked at it, it's just like everybody was running on him and he was getting a lot of assists because everybody was trying to. And in the years since, nobody has tried, you know, he's not getting those assists, but he's still not causing the respective guys not running on him. Uh, And the numbers aren't there, you know, so you can get there in both ways, but it's hard to do that, what he did for more than a year at a time, I think. I think it's such a great example of you just you 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 get the descriptive data down and then you can start stacking interesting analyses on top of it. So you go to respect and now we can go to decision making beyond that. Um, just layer on layer. Good, good fun. What a natural implication of this also might be that um, people with less history might also have more of an opportunity to have value because, you know, when there's uncertainty, people are going to run more. And so I just, you know, have you looked at the results as a function of, let's say, number of opportunities or time in the league, number of games played, et cetera? That, that is a great question. I have not looked at it in that way. My guess, and again, I haven't looked into it, is that there wouldn't be much there. And the reason for that is teams have so much data at the minor league level now no one comes up and is a total surprise and also throwing arm is not something you need to see a lot of right like if you want to get to a guy's batting average and say i 
rely on this. You need to see a couple hundred plate appearances. I don't need to see that many throws to say, wow, that guy threw a hundred miles an hour. That's, that's amazing. That's really cool. Pair that with the fact that everybody's got scouting reports from the miners. And my, my guess is they know everything about these guys before they come up. Before we let you go, what else can you say about Ellie De La Cruz? You just you just referred to his having this fastest assist, infield assist recorded yet. I mean, it's just one superlative after another. It's like the guy was made in a lab or something. Any insights from you about De La? He's just he's one of the great stories of the year. Anything on the way out about one of our new favorite players? I mean, I could sit here and recite all the superlatives, you know, the fastest this and the most that, and it's 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 all true, right? Like you look at the new base running metric we have, he rates fantastically in it. The the thing that we don't quantify, and I'm probably will never quantify it, that has impressed me the most is his baseball IQ. You probably saw the clip where he stole second and stole third and then also stole home because the pitcher wasn't paying attention. And it's like, this guy's been in the league for like three weeks. You know, who who does that? That was super cool. And I, while I love that he exists in the StatCast era and we can say all these amazing things about his skills, I worry a little bit about reducing him to just look at his arm and look at his legs because he looks like he's going to be a superstar all the way around. Yeah. You know, that reminds me, I forget what it was exactly, but Manny Machado, and I think the year he came up, he came up late in the season, if I remember correctly, and he's like 18, 19 years old, playing third, I believe. And he did some clever, you know, trick somebody play. And, and he, in this case, he hadn't been in the league for like less than three weeks, an 18-year-older, and he's like fooling somebody. It's one of these, these guys who are truly that much better than everyone else. It's one of these men among boys, even at the early age. They just have a quietness about them on the field that allows them to see things and do things other people aren't doing. I think that's right. And uh, I guess I'll take this opportunity to be a mild buzzkill here. He can hit the ball as hard as he wants. He needs to get it off the ground. His ground ball rate is way too high. Hit it in the air. He'll be a monster star. But we've seen guys hit the ball hard into the ground. We've seen like Eric Hosmer used to do that all the time. It doesn't work out. That's the one thing I want to see from him. Well, it does feel like people learn how to tweak their games these days better than ever before. You need a new swing? We can get you a new swing. At least that's what technology promises. Mike, we got to let you go. Thanks for the time, man. Greatly appreciated. Thanks a lot, guys. Take care. Mike Petriello, writer and stats analyst at MLB.com. You can find his work up there. Lots of good work from him. First time guest here. I'm sure we'll have him back. That has been a full hour of Wharton Moneyball here on SiriusXM. We do it every week. For the whole crew here, Eric Bradlow and Eric Audie Weiner, who've been with me from the beginning, Shane Jensen in absentia. He'll be back next week. Maddie Dats, the boss man, Deion Simpkins, the associate boss man. Thank you guys for listening. Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. Enjoy your sports.